Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the 31st of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. These calls are held every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. My name is Scott Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, the subject is COVID-19 and pandemic history, and my guests are Caroline Grigo and Tiago Sariva. We are streaming on YouTube Live. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter at US of Disaster. That's my Twitter handle, at US of Disaster. And you can also hear the COVID calls recorded as podcasts. Just go to soundcloud.com and search for the COVID calls podcast. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for guests and future topics for COVID calls. On Tuesday, my guest is WHYY science and health journalist, Mike and Scott. Mike is the host of The Pulse on WHYY Philadelphia. As of today, there are 3,020,117 confirmed cases of COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. That's up from 2,783,512 cases reported Friday. 980,008 of those cases are in the United States, up from 886,213 reported Friday. There are now a total of 55,637 deaths from COVID-19 reported in the United States, up from 50,780 50, reported on Friday. As we enter the seventh week of the COVID calls, I want to take a moment here just to thank all of my illuminating guests who've joined me so far. And I want to say a word of appreciation also for the many people who have reached out in encouragement that they are finding something useful in these discussions, um, something that makes them angry sometimes, but more frequently people have said they find ideas or solace in the discussions. There will be some changes in the coming weeks I have the uh, services now of a wonderful research assistant and an audio producer who are gonna help me get these calls into a more produced podcast form and to get them up, get them up on iTunes and Stitcher and Spotify. Left on my own, uh, this would probably never happen, so I'm very grateful for this assistance. We will also be making transcripts of the COVID calls available soon. And we will also be partnering COVID calls with some museums, archives, and other interesting institutions to help keep developing COVID calls in ways that bring interesting and useful information to the community. If you are connected with an institution that would like to partner to suggest topics, uh, partner and suggest topics or speakers for future COVID calls, please do get in touch with me. I also wanna thank my Drexel colleague, public health scholar, Esther Schernack, and emergency management scholar Sam Montano, both who have been on the program multiple times and uh, both who have agreed to come back for future calls. One final thing just to make you aware of here at the beginning, putting together a special show for a few weeks from now about COVID-19 and the class of 2020. So I'm looking for high school seniors and college seniors who would like to come on COVID calls and talk about what this experience has meant for them in their last year of high school or college, their hopes, their dreams, their research, things that they're thinking about after living through this experience. 
Okay, so I'd like to introduce my guests today. Caroline Grigo is a visiting assistant professor at the Queen's University of Charlotte History Department. She received her PhD in history at the University of Colorado Boulder in 2019 with funding from a Mellon ACLS Dissertation Completion Fellowship. Her work examines the Jim Crow Low Country and can be found in Black Autonomy, Red Cross Recovery, and White Backlash after the Great Sea Island Storm of 1893. This is a 2019 Journal of Southern History article, which won the official Calhoun article prize in the Journal of Southern History. And she's working on a book manuscript based on her dissertation, Hurricane of the New South, Testing the Jim Crow Environment After the Great Sea Island Storm of 1893. My second guest, Tiago Sariva, is Associate Professor of History at Drexel University. He is the co-editor of the journal History and Technology, and he's the author of Fascist Pigs, Techno-Scientific Organisms, and the History of Fascism. He is a historian of science and technology. He's been a research fellow at the Institute of Social Sciences of the University of Lisbon and the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science in Berlin, as well as visiting professor at UCLA and UC Berkeley. Among many, many other projects, Tiago is currently studying the significance of California oranges from the history of racial capitalism in South Africa, Algeria, Palestine, and Brazil. So Caroline and Tiago, welcome to COVID Calls. Thank you, Scott. I'd like to invite you all to get your questions in. You can get the questions in using the chat function on YouTube Live, or you can email them to me directly if you wish, or you can uh, just put them up on Twitter and tag me at US of Disaster. So let's go ahead and get started. I'd like to start with the question I ask everybody on COVID calls. I'd like to just know how things are going where you are. So Caroline, um, where are you? And could you tell us how things are there? Yeah, um, so I'm in Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, I'm from South Carolina originally, so I'm happy to be just right across the border teaching at Queens. Um, and things in North Carolina, for the past few days, they're starting to show a plateau, but of course, you know, I'm aware that a few days worth of data does not necessarily constitute a proper pattern or trend just yet. Um, I think that things here are a bit different than they are in South Carolina and Georgia, in part because North Carolina does have a Democratic governor, Roy Cooper, um, who has been more stringent about the stay-at-home order. Um, it's currently been extended to May 8th, which, you know, obviously is going to be the right choice, and recently unrolled sort of a multi-part plan for slowly reopening the state, um, where each portion is essentially contingent on hitting certain testing benchmarks before the next stage can proceed. Um, you know, uh, I teach at a small school that, you know, shut down around, I think, March 14th or so. Um, and North Carolina has seen some hotspots. The Research Triangle, of course, saw an early outbreak cluster of cases from researchers who had traveled abroad and then returned um, to schools in that area um, and then, you know, fell ill. In North Carolina, you're also seeing something that you see in other parts of the South too, which are these um, racial disparities in who is getting sick um, and, and who is dying. Uh, in North Carolina, about 20% of the population is African-American. So far, 39% um, of known and tested cases um, are of African-Americans. 35% of those who have died have been African-American. Um, you know, and that reflects some of the larger trends across the country that 
uh, scholars and journalists like Jamel Bowie, Kiangi Yamada-Taylor, and Deidre Cooper-Owens have been writing about. Um, if you want to learn more about why that is and, and what's going on, it's certainly here in North Carolina too. Um, so yeah, I'm staying safe at home. We'll see how things continue to go. Um, you know, our case numbers are, I think it's just over 9,000 or so at this point, I believe is where it is. Um, and we'll just continue to hang in there and see where it goes. Well, thank you for that update. And also thank you for promoting the, the work of scholars who are showing this important racial disparity in the cases. Would you mind just um, giving those names one more time for people who might be interested in learning more? Sure. Um, Jabelle Bowie, obviously the New York Times. Uh, Kiangi Yamada-Taylor, I believe, had a New Yorker article about this. And then Deidre Cooper-Owens had an op-ed appear that appeared, I believe, in the Houston Chronicle just today or yesterday, um, honestly. Um, so yeah, and they write compellingly about history um, as well as the present and make all these connections demonstrating how, you know, this comes from uh, built-in features um, that rest on the history of racial oppression, Jim Crow, um, and, and so forth in the United States and how that's brought to bear in the present during the coronavirus uh, epidemic. So in a major part of what we talk about today. So Tiago, let me turn to you. Tell us how things are where you are, but I'm going to ask for double reporting from you because I'm going to also ask you to tell me how the things are um, that you're hearing because I know you have family and close friends in Portugal as well. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Scott. Uh, yes, so here the panorama is not too different from what Caroline uh, uh, described. Uh, so I've, I'm in Montgomery uh, County, also one of the hotspots uh, in Pennsylvania uh, for, the, uh, for, for coronavirus. So also connected to uh, scholars or uh, people who have traveled to Europe and came back uh, early on. And so it was one of the early hotspots. Uh, but of course, the dimensions of it are nothing compared to what we've seen in New York uh, here in the outskirts of Philadelphia. And as uh, also happened in North Carolina, so the story here is one of uh, strong racial disparities. Uh, so uh, something that we will probably be able to explore in detail during today's conversation of what's going on here in the suburbs of Philadelphia and actually what's going on in downtown Philly. You know, which is a different kind of story. Uh, and uh, so concerning the, the Portuguese uh, uh, context, uh, it has actually been, so the Portuguese story, it has been a very interesting one to follow. And uh, fortunately enough, having family there, it's quite a, uh, it's a, a bright spot uh, somehow in the, uh, in the European general context. Um, you know, uh, it's, uh, so Portugal, uh, so it's a small country in Western, uh, in Western Europe, uh, not the richest of, uh, of the countries in the European Union, nevertheless having a quite effective answer to the pandemic. So it closed earlier when it started having news from what was happening in uh, looking at Spain and Italy. The government, it also has helped a lot, apparently that the government uh, is quite... Um, it's not only stable, but uh, it has been quite reasonable in what it has demanded from citizenship. Uh, and uh, so the numbers are in comparison to the rest of Europe. So it's uh, it are low. So they are on the same scale of what is happening in Germany mm -hmm. or, uh, you know, what, so it's the most, among the most successful stories there when you compare it namely with the uh, the other darker stories of that you've been learning from Spain, namely from Italy, uh, or from Belgium. You know, so it's 
uh, I think that those those country comparisons are really important to make uh, in order to have these differentiated stories of what is going on in Europe according to geographies. And actually in the United States, we can learn a lot from that as well. You know? mm -hmm. So the numbers in the US, when you've mentioned those huge numbers, as you mentioned in the beginning, you know, that make the US now the center of the, the world center for the, for the pandemics. Uh, well, in absolute, in absolute terms, that's of course true. And in, um, in uh, relative terms, I think the US, more or less following the, corona, following the Johns Hopkins site, the US is now, uh, it's a middle case between the really, really dark cases uh, when you compare it to Europe of Italy and Spain and Belgium. Uh, and uh, it's a little bit lower than them. So it's, the US is like now 14, uh, 14 15 deaths per 100,000 people. Mm -hmm. uh, while you have the numbers in Belgium is 62, at 62. Uh, and then Portugal and Germany, they have it eight deaths per thousand, per, per 100,000, sorry. So that's the scale of it. You know? mm -hmm. And I think that when we make those comparisons, uh, it's actually, it's important to have those, uh, of course, those numbers per 100,000 are, are crucial, are obviously important when you make, when you make those distinctions. And then just one, one more thing about Portugal, uh, which I think it's interesting, is that um, the way it has been discussed, the success story. You know? So if certain, if uh, there is, of course, uh, many articles and many so the public is discussing it as you know praising finally there is something to something good to say about portugal and this kind of stuff but a more uh, maybe a more interesting discussion has always has also been the one of um uh, trying to connect this to more to structural trends in portuguese society and actually not so nice uh, indicators uh, namely like a previous condition of uh, where, uh, uh, where elderly people in the country were already recognized as being isolated, socially isolated. Mm -hmm. And so that, that actually helped the numbers. And so it's like a discussion of actually how people have been already uh, uh, living in pre-COVID conditions, which in many cases were not, uh, it's not something to, uh, that we should be proud of, you know, as Portuguese. Uh, also, one, another interesting dimension is the political one of why Portuguese citizenship was so willing to actually accept the government's, uh, government's uh, uh, orders and government's uh, suggestions of stay at home, you know, uh, which was actually quite different from what happened, for example, in Spain or in Italy. Uh, and there is, you know, good, uh, there is, there are good reasons to think that uh, a, a long past of uh, authoritarianism in the country in the 20th century also played a role in that, mm -hmm. in people actually willing to uh, be will, being willing to to um, to stay at home and not challenging governments uh, uh, governments initiatives. But that said, so it's these are just like suggestions on how to interpret that. You know, mm -hmm. it's not just like we know it's because Portugal had a long regime of fascism that this happened. Right? But I think it's really something that it deserves exploring these deeper trends. You know these deeper trends, these deeper structural trends. Oh, I appreciate that. And what, a, and what a compelling way to start, because I think, you know, if there's one thing, uh, I think many things historians can contribute to these, con these conversations. One thing we can contribute is to, we don't see the nations as monolithic. Mm -hmm. uh, we see um, these patterns across uh, 
demography and across geography as inheritances of historical uh, you know, legacies of conflict in many cases. Um, and so let's get into that. And Caroline, I think I'm going to ask you first, if you don't mind, to um, tell us a little bit about the Great Sea Island Storm of 1893. Talk to us about your research with that and bring us into how that illuminates, in some ways, um, pandemic history. Sure, sure. Um, so yes, uh, this is Based on my dissertation, it's currently being turned into a book project. I actually got reader reports back from the press today on the proposal. So, um, you know, excited to be moving forward with that. This came at the right time to start sort of synthesizing and thinking about, you know, the story and the narrative here. Um, so I write about this hurricane that struck South Carolina and Northern Georgia in 1893. Um, it was and still is the deadliest hurricane in the history of South Carolina. Um, and you know, one of the most destructive, obviously. Um, and significantly, it killed thousands of people in what was one of the last remaining strongholds of black political power left in the South um, at this point in history. Um, and it killed an extraordinarily large number of people, though the exact number is unknowable. As you often see, obviously, with reconstructing the reconstructing those kinds of death tolls, it's it's very tricky. Um, and I think we're seeing today, um, you know, in tragic terms just why that is right so the, these estimates go from anywhere from 1500 to about 5000 5000 is sort of this upward limit there um and it strikes south carolina in late august of 1893 um and it's what we would probably call a category three storm now but what made it extraordinarily deadly as with hurricanes, what ends up being the real killer is, of course, the storm surge. Um, and it did bring with it sort of an extraordinary storm surge that entirely covered many of these low-lying islands um, that lie separated from the mainland, essentially by creeks and marshes. These aren't, you know, standalone islands by any means. Um, and the storm surge entirely inundated a number of them, um, including, you know, Kiowa Island, which is one of the larger, more prominent islands, which is now, of course, a, a resort privately held, um, you know, famous for its golf courses. Um, but at the time, of course, these islands were populated by African Americans um, who were, you know, at this point, not even 30 years out of slavery. Um, and this region that it struck happened to have a couple things that were very important. First of all, it had this lingering legacy of reconstruction that African Americans had spent the past few decades trying to nurture. Mm. Um, this part of South Carolina was part of the Port Royal experiment, uh, which was uh, what the historian Willie Lee Rose referred to as a rehearsal for reconstruction that began in 1861 when the US military retook a small area of islands around Beaufort, South Carolina um, from the Confederates. Uh, the enslavers fled and about 10,000 enslaved African-Americans were left behind. Uh, and the U.S. government then sent down, you know, missionaries, uh, educators, all sorts of people to try to figure out what to do um, to cause the transition of African-Americans from enslaved workers to free citizens. Uh, these visions for what that should look like often clashed many times with what African-Americans themselves wanted, which was to nurture their own autonomy. Um, it was very rarely their desire to uh, pick cotton for a wage for, you know, white people. Um, instead, they wanted to set up their own homesteads on usually 10 to 20 acres of land where they could provide for their families um, and live within these communities um, and family networks there. Uh, 
So you have this legacy of reconstruction, African-Americans there, thus in the 1890s, owned land at rates that you just don't see anywhere else in the South. Um, upwards of 70% of African-Americans owned their own land um, in you know, this area right around Beaufort in 1890. That's as compared to you know, anywhere between 20 to 30% for most other counties in South Carolina. Um, so you have not only these high rates of land tenure, you also have an extraordinarily high African-American population where over 90% of the population is black, less than 10% is white. Again, that's a proportion you don't really see that heavily weighted in other parts of the South. Um, and as a result of this, you know, these political and cultural communities that African-Americans have sort of had in place since the 1860s, you also thus see that it is, you know, more difficult to dislodge African-American political power from this region too. Um, and by 1893 though, there's a real, you know, fight over this ongoing in the state. Um, this is in part because, you know, Reconstruction ended in South Carolina in 1876 with this sort of bloody coup led by General Wade Hampton III to retake the state government um, from Republicans and, you know, uh, bring it back into the rule of the old planter class and, and so forth. Um, but it hadn't really been able to make these inroads against Beaufort and the surrounding area um, of the Sea Islands. Parks is high African-American population in part because of these high rates of land tenure and also because you actually have a large or decently large number of elected African-American officials there too. The Sheriff of Beaufort was black in 1893. The only African-American representative in the US House was from the South Carolina Low Country. Um, you have this black professional class that exists in Beaufort, bolstered by white Republicans who are more or less allies um, of this sort of political community there. However, what you have going on in other parts of South Carolina is you're starting to see an interest in the consolidation of white supremacy under the governor, Benjamin Ryan Tillman, who was elected in 1890. Now, Tillman posed as a populist. That's how he rose to power. Um, however, he was from an extraordinarily wealthy family that enslaved you know, hundreds of people in Edgefield County, which is an inland county on the Savannah River in southwestern South Carolina. Tillman um, has this, he was a variant racist, of course, um, and he had this sort of abrasive presence that really irritated um, whites from Charleston and other parts of the state who considered themselves to be more genteel. Um, though, of course, that was a facade in its own way, right? But Tillman has risen to power to the governor's seat, and one of his primary goals um, was essentially to consolidate and centralize his own power. Um, and for him, that meant trying to unseat the African-Americans on the coast um, who had sort of protected themselves um, from this for a few decades at this point. Into this comes this hurricane, this massively destructive hurricane that of course not only kills thousands of people, but also destroys homes and farm fields, you know, right on the cusp of the harvest um, and ends up, you know, impoverishing tens of thousands of people, um, maybe 30,000 on the Sea Islands alone, then maybe 40,000 more, you know, sort of on the mainland right by the coast. You know, 
the sort of conflicts that you'd expect thus ensue, right? Where African-Americans try to um, develop relief committees and uh, recovery efforts that will help protect and nurture their autonomy, sort of bolster themselves against this final push of Jim Crow. Whereas of course, white South Carolinians and white supremacists instead want to try to seize the destruction of this hurricane um, to finally sort of cut off this black political power that you see there. Um, now, I'll start to sort of wrap this up a bit by saying that one thing that makes this really interesting is that you do end up having sort of an unexpected interlocutor into this, which is that the American Red Cross under Claire Barton um, arrives in South Carolina about six weeks after the hurricane strikes and sets up a nine-month recovery effort there. The largest the Red Cross yet attempted, they were found in 1881, um, and they end up staying there. And being this sort of interesting third party. Now, mind you, they were deeply paternally racist, um, but they also um, wanted to try to nurture African-American self-sufficiency um, and also resented many of the accusations that got lobbed against them from white South Carolinians who claimed, for example, that they were favoring African-Americans over whites and the aid that they distributed, um, you know, uh, who tried essentially to tear down the work that they were doing there. So this plays out and unfolds over the course of nine months, too. Um, and all of this ends up having these effects that spiral out for decades after. The hurricane ends up being, for example, sort of an, a nail in the coffin for rice cultivation, which had once been the central economic driver um, and, you know, what made so many white South Carolinians so wealthy. Um, it ends up destroying other aspects and economies that African-Americans have been able to earn small wages from that helped sort of bolster their subsistence living on their farms. Um, and it ends up being sort of this, this marker in the lives of so many people in South Carolina um, that eventually, you know, you read interviews from uh, African-Americans who moved north in the 1920s, and many of them mentioned the hurricane as this moment after which just nothing got better for them, right? Um, so I explore this as a slow disaster, which is a term that those who listen to the podcast might be familiar with, um, because of course the hurricane ends up interacting with um, and triggering all of these different processes of, of change, um, political, economic, environmental um, change within the low country. Um, now I'll talk a little bit later uh, once Scott prompts me about, you know, the role of disease, specifically sort of endemic diseases like malaria in the low country as mm -hmm. this goes on. Um, and that's where I'll sort of tie this back into the question of what we can learn about illness from this hurricane. Um, but that's my, my framer for right now. So I'll hand it back off. Yeah, it's a tremendous story. And I think, you know, mostly, um, when I think of 1893 and the sort of traditions of American historiography, I'm thinking about the Columbian Exposition and my focus mm -hmm. is entirely in the urban space. Mm -hmm. But you're telling us a Jim Crow story and an important political one. Just, just to, to put a marker in this though, because you mentioned the Red Cross, mm -hmm. what kinds of disease outbreak would the Red Cross have already had in their mind when they arrived, let's say on the scene to begin providing aid? What's, what were they, worried about in that moment. Yeah, um, so they were actually just coming off of trying to provide assistance for a yellow fever outbreak, I believe in Jacksonville, Florida, um, that went for a variety of reasons quite poorly. Um, but malaria and yellow fever and then gastroenteritis, which they called cholera morbus at the time, um, were sort of the three things that they're most worried about. Um, 
you know, because this, this storm surge had essentially ruined all fresh water available in wells and cisterns across the Sea Islands, um, and had also, you know, um, led to these conditions that would have been favorable for mosquitoes. Not that they yet knew that malaria was contracted from mosquitoes at the time. They still instead thought it came from these sort of miasmas that rose up from decaying vegetable matter and, and so forth. Um, but yes, malaria, yellow fever, and then various sort of gastroenteritis illnesses were what they were most worried about. Tiago, to you, same time period, but different locations. And I know you've been um, researching plague outbreaks in the late 19th century. So situate us, tell us what was happening. So uh, this is like a topic I have explored many years ago uh, for my dissertation. <laughs> uh, and I hadn't returned to it uh, until very recently. And of course now uh, with a, a renewed interest because of what, was, what, uh, what is uh, currently afflicting us with the, with the COVID pandemic. And so uh, in all these discussions of uh, what are the significant cases to understand uh, our current situation, also that's uh, what can history uh, teach us about uh, our, our uh, current situation, what is the best example? Uh, and of course, so the influenza pandemics uh, comes in once and again, uh, the influenza of 1917, 1918 comes once and again. Uh, and I, I was thinking and uh, thinking about stuff that I've exp explored uh, while I was doing my dissertation, that actually this bubonic plague of the late 19th century, uh, so it starts uh, in China uh, in 1894, uh, so from, uh, so it, it starts in uh, Yunnan, then goes for, uh, to Hong Kong in 1894, uh, and this was actually uh, a more illuminating case, or it could have potentials, uh, pot potential for not only for historians, but for general public that are normally not acknowledged. And so basically, so it goes, so it's a um, uh, bubonic plague uh, goes out, goes from uh, China to Hong Kong, from mainland China to Hong Kong. And from there, it travels across the globe following the, um, following the, the um, commercial networks established mainly by the British Empire and it reaches many ports across the globe. Uh, so it, it reaches uh, uh, Mumbai, uh, 1896, it reaches Alexandria uh, in Egypt, it reaches uh, 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 Porto in Portugal, which is the case that I'm really like, I, I know the details, the, the, the details of. Uh, it reaches, of course, in the US, San Francisco. In Brazil, it reaches Rio de Janeiro, and in all, and in all these, parts, uh, there are different stories to be told. So one obvious case to be made is that not too, too, not too different from what we, we see today, is that globalization uh, feeds the spread of this, or uh, uh, the spread of the, of the, uh, uh, of, of the epidemics, you know? So 
that's more or less, that's a very obvious case to be made. And of course, that all much of our current so like typical gesture of historians is say, oh, there is nothing new here. You know, there is like this has been global for a long time. You know, and this is a pandemic. Actually, these travels with commerce and with globalization, the late 19th century is a perfect place to see that. I think there is actually something even more, much more relevant to be said, which is that it's not only that the pandemics. You know that the uh, the the that the epidemics travels uh, with steamships and with uh, the, with uh, with global commerce. With actually news of the pandemics, they also travel, you know? uh, and uh, and so that everyone is like is is de uh, describing, you know, through uh, uh, news coming that came that arrived through telegraph, namely. Uh, to telegraph cables that are also that have a global reach, uh, they are they are aware of what is going on in Hong Kong or what is going on in Mumbai or what is going on in Calcutta or what is going on in Sydney or what is going on uh, in South Africa. So this is like, and that is another important part of the story, which is in many places the 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 ans the, the the local answers to the arrival of the plague. You know, uh, they have to do with uh, this notion of a, a, there is a global panic. There is a global panic around the pandemics. Mm. Uh, and that global panic is directly attached to the economic status of each city. Meaning that uh, in many places, the first, the first thing that authorities do is say, there is no plague here. That's actually the first thing that Hong Kong officials under British control by the time, uh, so it's to say, like the first, the first gesture, and this is replicated in many other places. That oh, those things happening in China, in mainland China, this is like just you know, the plague is a thing of the past. It's a medieval, is a medieval, uh, 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 is, is a medieval thing. You know, it can't arrive in a modern place like Hong Kong, a modern harbor like Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. And so the first gesture is to say, this never, this never arrived here you know, mm -hmm. until. Uh, you spread out and things and uh, so it, it's in all these places uh, you have like uh, a large period of time until actually there is recognition by local authorities that you have actually an issue. In some places where it arrived like San Francisco you know, until very late people say there is never bubonic plague in San Francisco actually you know? uh, and so all those discussions that Caroline was, was mentioning about numbers of deaths you know, so in connection to the bubonic plague of the late 19th century, early 20th century, they are quite, they are really relevant. That's like politics, because that's like, that, that will determine if a harbor can still make commerce or not make commerce, if it will be banned to make commerce with other places. And if you say that San Francisco, now it has plague, well then, things going out from San Francisco, they can't be accepted by other ports, uh, there will be no tourists coming to California, Things like this, yeah. uh, and so this, um, uh, so this idea of how what travels, you know, it's not just the globalization story here is not just that it travels with the uh, that the 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 plague travels uh, with ships and with with commerce, but it's also the news of it and what are the commercial effects of it. Uh, so that's that's one thing, and then the other one, which I think it's really important connected to this, is the role of scientists and bacteriologists in all of this story. Um, so that's how I actually started to look at this because 
This is late 19th century. Uh, so I'm an historian of science. That's how I was trained. And this was like a big topic to discuss the emergency of the, the emergence of the laboratory as a site, as an important site for to, dis, to discuss um, uh, political issues and uh, or city, city, how you organize the city, how you manage the city, and that the laboratory becomes an obligatory place to discuss that, namely by the end of the 19th century through the work of bacteriologists, famously the German Koch or the French Pasteur. You know, this is like an, a traditional argument in history of science, and that it's true, like epidemics and bacteriologies, they go together, and that, and that the laboratory, the rise of the laboratory, has an important place in our modern in our uh, uh, modern society also is attached to that uh, to those uh, um, contexts of epidemics of the second half of the late of the of the 19th century well but there is something else going on here in the bubonic play that really calls my attention is that the role of scientists normally and of scientists in here in the, the bacteriologist scientists so these heroes of bacteriology and their new places their new laboratories is to actually make the case that it is safe and that we are doing something here, mm -hmm. that we are doing something in these cities. You know? That actually, so that's how, for example, in, in, when the, the plague arrives in Porto, so in Portugal, in the northern part of the second city in Portugal, uh, each commission of bacteriologists from all over Europe arrives in the city. Uh, and it's not that they solve the issue, of bubonic plague in Porto. They never solved it, but actually it was very important to make the case that, yes, we are dealing with this. We are dealing with this. So please trust us. The authorities are taking this uh, into consideration. Uh, and um, so it would be an argument. It, it's, part, it's an important part of the argument that uh, the, uh, a port city like Porto, like the name, the name suggests, or a port city like San Francisco or like Rio de Janeiro, when you have the best scientists working in place, then you can guarantee that products coming out of the city can also be accepted, you know, it can be shipped to somewhere else. You know, that the authorities are doing something. And that it's an important role of scientists at, in, at this, in this conjuncture of actually you know, offering some kind of solace you know, solace or, uh, or offering the, the, the notion that in this kind of panic, general social panic that is going on, uh, the science is something that you will rely on you know, in order to be able to live under these conditions of disaster. Okay? It is, there is something that I see in several different contexts. I think that actually also speaks a lot to what is going on today. So scientists, yeah. not so much as a you know as kind of actors that uh, just are here to provide innovations and uh, but actually some that are but actors that whose practices are fundamental to keep some kind of social order and namely to uh, to cope with panic situations mm -hmm. and panic where that mix that mixes the the health issue with the economic issue always yeah, because this is, and it's 1893 in the US, it's 1894, it's 1895. This is like a, another connection, which is the economic crisis of the 1893s, which in the US known, it was known at the time as the Depression. You know? And this was a global phenomenon. And the way it was described 
through panic, how it was, how there was contagion, uh, uh, contagion between different countries, between different financial systems. In many ways, you just the the connections are are the direct. You know how you describe the health crisis yeah. or the financial crisis of the of the eighteen nineties. So uh, these are, I mean, they're they're such different cases in some ways, and yet they opened up, I think, to me quite interesting and useful points for comparison. And I, and I'm, I can't help but think, I mean, Tiago, your description of this uh, in Hong Kong, you know, the, the, the reaction that, no, this is some visitation from the Middle Ages, we can't possibly, in modern San Francisco, we can't possibly uh, imagine that the plague, the bubonic plague would, would arrive. We have steamships, we have telegraphy, we have electricity uh, mm -hmm. in some places. Um, and Caroline, to your case, I mean, yeah, this, the Civil War is much more recent in people's memories, and yet still there is this emerging sense of a new South mm -hmm. with a new white supremacist social order, mm -hmm. but an emerging capitalism and, and a, an emerging modernity. Mm -hmm. um, and it seems like this, this case that you bring us is also sort of on that fulcrum between, you know, a past which you want to set aside and a new, mm -hmm. a new era, but yet somehow the disaster or the disease encroaches. It, it brings itself into that moment. Now, Tiago is, is describing the, the presence of the clinic as a tool that urban uh, urbanists can use to say, see, we have the clinic and so we've got, we can manage now. I guess in the low country, they, they don't have that. Or can you tell us a little bit about the bacteriological and, and um, medical situation, scientific situation in South Carolina? Do they have that kind of a case to make? Sure. Uh, so, you know, one thing that is interesting about this was sort of going back through and, and seeing these moments where, you know, a history of science and medicine sort of rears its head in the sources and what, it, what I've written already too. And what's kind of tricky about this is that everybody knows um, and seems to understand that a fear of a resurgence of malaria or yellow fever is one of the most dangerous outcomes of the hurricane. Um, but there's simply not any sort of centralized infrastructure to deal with it. So you, you see it sort of come out in a couple ways. Um, it is interesting, again, to see that everybody knows that this medical crisis is what could follow this hurricane. Um, and there's a lot of discussion of this. There, there are these rumors. Um, you know, and these fears of this epidemic. The Sea Islands were in this incredibly precarious position because of these sort of brackish floodwaters that had, you know, destroyed freshwater sources, um, that, you know, the hurricane itself had flushed all sorts of, you know, decaying matter from crops to um, farm animals that had died to, of course, people who had died too, um, who simply haven't been retrieved for a variety of reasons that end up leading to this, um, you know, this sort of horrorscape in the low country. You see a lot of people writing about just how much it smelled, which makes me think of the really wonderful recent book, Smell Detectives, right? Where the scent um, of more urban spaces, of course, gives you a sense of what the health is. And in the low country, a rural space, um, you see time and time again, um, you know, this fear that this smell indicated that something was wrong with health in the low country. One says, you know, effluvia arising from so much decayed vegetable matter that would lead to people imbibing so much miasma into their system. Um, this sense that the scent itself is what, you know, fosters disease within people. 
you see doctors writing about this, uh, you know, who live in the area themselves and are trying to draw some attention to this, this plight that they see. Um, now, of course, Governor Tillman does send a Dr. Babcock, who was at the time the head of what was then called, um, you know, the asylum in Columbia. And he, he gets sent as essentially Tillman's emissary to the coast for this. And Dr. Babcock does exactly what you said. He, he says, well, there's no plague here. You know, it, there's nothing really to worry about. But there are other reports from doctors that, that cast doubt on this. I have one account from a doctor writing, I think from St. Helena Island, recording, you know, 100 cases of malarial fever, 100 cases of gastroenteritis, um, uh, another island near Beaufort reports 700 cases of malarial fever in the wake of this. Mm. Um, and keep in mind that this is a dispersed, you know, rural population um, that has extraordinarily limited access to what we would consider healthcare. Um, so you can imagine, of course, that these cases are much larger um, than are necessarily reflected in this historical record itself. Physicians saw this hurricane as exacerbating what they already felt were the most dangerous aspects of the low country environment, and I could talk more about the history of that a little bit later, but it's humidity, the quickness of decay, the propensity towards flooding, because these are, of course, extraordinarily low-lying islands, and the hurricane only sort of worsened those attributes. And what's really interesting is that you see um, advocacy for federal aid often being directed towards this medical angle. Now, of course, there was no centralized plan for federal disaster relief at this time. Um, instead, what you see is sort of a case-by-case -case basis in which, you know, emissaries, representatives from afflicted areas would essentially venture to D.C. and see if there was anything, any money, any assistance that they could get, whether it was from Congress um, or various members of the cabinet. So you do have, you know, uh, Representative George Washington Murray, who is African-American, goes to D.C., as does his sort of opponent, um, William Elliott, who is a uh, Confederate colonel and erstwhile politician who had sort of tried to defraud Murray out of the political election a couple years previous. They both go to D.C. and are trying to sort of get aid. And where they're going is for medical supplies. Um, Murray writes about how more will die from privation and starvation than were immediately taken off by the flood and the storm. Um, Eliot points to history. He says, after hurricanes in 1817, 1854, and 1871, malaria epidemics followed. Um, and because of that history and those patterns, therefore, there needs to be some sort of aid to make sure this doesn't occur again, right? I find this interesting because, of course, um, you know, it shows this recognition um, that, you know, this disaster isn't natural, that in fact the conditions that follow in the aftermath and the actions that people take will predicate what the outcome is. Um, and you're seeing this sort of expressed perhaps at a time and a place where you don't necessarily expect to, um, but seems to me to be quite clearly sort of undergirding these arguments for federal assistance um, that Elliot and Murray are making. I want to, so one thing I want to highlight is you, you, you need to write your script now i mean that's so remarkably cinematic this mm -hmm. idea that you have the two emissaries the african-american emissary and the white emissary both going to washington making the case for medical relief mm -hmm. um for their for their community but i, I want to just bring slavery back into this because um and uh, tiago i want to connect this also since you're talking about a pandemic i mean we're talking about the 19th century i mean this is the age of race science so mm -hmm. to speak and so to start with slavery for a second, the outbreaks, the previous outbreaks of malaria somehow connect to racialized understandings of slave health. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, the low country, you know, this area along the coast stretching from, you know, arguably Northern Florida to Southern North Carolina, but sort of its core in Northern Georgia and, and South Carolina um, has a long history of endemic disease, particularly of course, malaria. Um, you know, it's a place with a troublesome environment. It's hot, um, it's wet, um, you know, it has this, you know, propensity towards flooding that makes the landscape very difficult to harness and control. And it's only, of course, with, you know, a brutal system of slavery that any sort of purchase is, is made, um, you know, to, to put wealth in the pockets of these enslavers who, um, you know, uh, benefit from the system of rice cultivation in particular um, in South Carolina and into Georgia especially. Um, so it has this long history of humans sort of confronting and often being sort of de- sort of defeated or beaten back um, by the environment itself. And part of this is whether it's from diseases or from hurricanes. Um, and malaria and hurricanes, interestingly, I think sort of play off each other in the low country as these two great sort of challenges mm. that face anyone who wants to try to live there. Um, you know, and so it has this endemic disease of malaria. There are flares of yellow fever. Occasionally, it re- reaches these epidemic levels. Um, you know, the first major yellow fever epidemic strikes Charleston, I believe, in 1699. It kills about 15% of the population. Um, the last yellow fever epidemic actually was, I think, in like 1878 in South Carolina. The, the last yellow fever epidemic in South Carolina was at that time. And malaria lingers until much later. It has a final flare-up in the 1940s after the Santee Cooper hydroelectric project, which, of course, creates a stagnant water that leads to this sort of outburst of malaria um, in its wake. But malaria itself, um, you know, comes to South Carolina in two different strains. Um, One is, you know, it's a parasitic infection born through mosquitoes. Um, One is much more virulent and deadly, and the other leads to the sort of recurrent malaria that you see people sort of struggling with over time, um, in which it, you know, comes back uh, now and again. Now, African-Americans, many of them did have some level you know, if they came from West Africa of immunity to, um, Mm. you know, the more virulent one. But that immunity, I find, uh, is actually, I think, overstated in some ways to justify African-Americans being forced to live um, in these rice plantations or labor camps, as some historians have begun to refer to them, um, to justify this. Because there's also no denying a central fact, which was that the mortality rate of, um, you know, enslaved workers enslaved children in particular, was unbelievably high um, on these rice plantations um, throughout the 18th and 19th centuries. Um, Now, of course, it's hard again to pin down exactly what that mortality rate was, um, but the best place to go for this to learn more is William Dusenbear's book, um, Them Dark Days, where he's able to find some fairly complete records um, from plantations owned by the Manigo family, um, you know, based in Charleston. One of these is a rice plantation on the Savannah River called Gowrie. Um, and he finds that the child mortality rate there is 90%. Um, it's this incredibly high amount. And of course, adults die in significant numbers too. It was rare, mm-hmm. Deuce Bear finds, to find uh, an enslaved African or African-American who was above the age of 40 wow. um, on some of these plantations. And that's because... Um, Of course, you're seeing a convergence of multiple factors. Malaria, yes, Um, but also, of course, overwork, malnutrition, 
all sort of work together to increase the morbidity from diseases like malaria um, that, of course, were endemic and extraordinarily common um, there. This also creates a, a highly segregated landscape. It was a well-known trope that white people could not survive in the low country um, in the summer and into the fall. And so what you end up seeing are these patterns of, of sociability, as you sort of referred to in the questions you distributed earlier, in which white people did not live you know, on the plantations, basically between May to November. Mm. They would instead, you know, go to their mansions in Charleston right. or places in the Sandhills upstate to escape this unhealthy environment mm -hmm. and would instead leave enslaved workers there um, where they often suffered greatly from this disease. And those so. are the fever months. So, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, we had, I had uh, Mike Udell and David Barnes on last week and they were talking about, um, no, it's very urban. They're talking mm -hmm. about Philadelphia, but similar sort of yellow fever and presuppositions that white physicians had that African-Americans were immune to yellow fever, which then uh, um, allowed them to go forward with the notion that they should be the caregivers. Mm -hmm. um, and it was just sort of, you know, an understood, an understood thing, you know, it's, it's sort of a, a science by anecdote in a sense, but in effect, what it's doing is underlying um, the, the real scientific truth as they saw it, which was a racial science. Mm -hmm. Tiago, I want to bring that same question to you if, if you want to take it on in the, in the sense that, you're following this plague literally across multiple continents. And so it must have had a racialized understanding as it traveled from port to port. What were the politics of, of race around the plague? Well, it's so, yeah, that is a, a, a great topic for this, uh, for this, uh, to deal with the bubonic plague. And, and again, those connections between uh, uh, capitalism and race in these different places, and also the role of uh, migrant uh, Chinese people in uh, in California or in India, another colonial dimension of race. So many ways of approaching this. Let me just, you know, in order for, we don't have much time, but maybe the San Francisco story is again, it's well known. Uh, uh, I think the story of uh, Chinese populations such in what was Chinatown, San Francisco, becoming targeted uh, for the, by the uh, uh, because of the bubonic plague, being like supposedly the bearers and the, the uh, of uh, uh, of the plague, it's uh, it's interesting how they were able. How in the case of San Francisco, uh, uh, Chinese uh, uh, Chinese people were able to use the judiciary system, the, the judicial system in the United States, to actually. Uh, and make uh, 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 initiatives that were targeting them. Never, but this is not. It can be told as a nice story, you know, of uh, of uh, actually granting uh, minorities in this country uh, uh, some kind of rights through the judicial system. I think it's actually a good story of uh, what uh, some people, what our friend, for example, Amy Slayton, would call a false consolation. You know, false consolation, where actually what happened uh, in San Francisco is a story of uh, growing isolation of that community uh, and of lower uh, political relevance of that community in San Francisco. When you compare it, for example, with what happened also because of the plague with in Honolulu, where actually the, the entire Chinese neighborhood was uh, torn down by fire, 
And so that's one another of those combinations, mm. combinations of plague and disaster that Scott are an expert in. Uh, uh, it's, uh, the San Francisco case seems a little bit better, but uh, actually uh, it's, uh, it, what it led to is to, again, those entrench, entrenching of notions that were already there. So again, it's not by chance 19, 1904, we have also uh, the the so the Chinese Inclusion Act it's actually it becomes a permanent thing. One more one more dimension that I really think it's interesting here about the Rwandan plague is how this ends. How this ends? Uh, well, it never ends. You know, it's a typical story of it's a typical story of it never ends, and it never ends the the way uh, that we are supposed that these things are supposed to end, which is oh, the bacteriologists came here. They solved right. the problem. Everyone gets a vaccine, and that's it. Well, in the San Francisco story, that's not. It doesn't end like that. Well, many people would, for a long time, say it never happened there. Actually, what it, it traveled to the rest of the country. The bubonic plague becomes endemic in the United States. Uh, it you have bursts of bubonic plague in Los Angeles, for example. You know, uh, Southern California, where again the numbers of vets. They are when you just when we measure the relevance of these episodes just by numbers of deaths, it's not it, it wouldn't strike as the a major a major thing, but actually they become quite crucial in episodes of um, in a, a dividing uh, uh, communities and namely in a, a targeting um, people of Mexican origin in Los Angeles. Uh, so and uh, 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 targeting them as problematic, problematic populations. In all of these stories of the, what is a problematic population, what is a problematic race, it's always it comes together that notion of sociability, particular sociability is a feature there, and targeting them as problematic ways of behaving in public. You know, although they're supposedly the uh, their house, the, these populations are targeted as not knowing how to live, not being dirty, so being dirty, the usual stuff that you would expect, but also that it's the development and the naturalization of a certain way of behaving in public. It is something that you see during the entire 19th century in relation to cholera, in relation to yellow fever, in the US, but also in Europe, in many other places where these kinds of things like what you would call today social distancing, you know, that they became a norm to identify what is proper public behavior. And whoever doesn't behave that way you know, is targeted as a problematic population. And so in ways of expressing your affection in public, touching other people, kissing in public, mm -hmm. touching others in public, you know, they become problematized, namely in relation to uh, uh, epidemics politics. You know? And so you see these with cholera very obviously uh, during the entire 19th century in Europe, you see it in the late, and then you see it in the late 19th century also together with this bubonic plague story. Mm -hmm. Remarkable. I, um, I could listen to both of you talk all day long. I, uh, we're a little bit up on time, but if it's okay, can I borrow 10 more minutes from each of you? Do yeah, you, by me. Yeah, Please. okay, yeah. Because I, I have a couple more questions and I want to, um, Tiago, I want to stay with you for a second because I know that you, um, so you also, you write about people, but you also write about uh, non-people uh, in your work. In fact, most of your work is, uh, is from your most amazingly titled book, Fascist Pigs. You look at 
um, non-human species and their histories and their circulation around the world. And I know I have yet to see much strong reporting about the non-human carriers of viruses in the context of COVID-19. There have been a few stories here and there um, you know, early on sort of trying to sleuth out the sort of initial hu animal to human transmission piece. Um, but we live in a world in which we're constantly trying to account for the transmission of viruses in plant species, aren't we? I mean, isn't that a, like a constant feature of, of the global capitalism also? Are there some connections, useful connections we can make here and how the world prepares for those kinds of Yes. Disease transmissions. <laughs> yes, or at least to think about, you know, to, uh, to think about uh, those those connections again between uh, the global circulation of viruses and global capitalism, the way we how we produce food you know, uh, on a global scale. That's the kind of things that I'm that I'm interested in. It's like, uh, namely, so viruses story stories they play a prominent role in my current research uh, on the travels of oranges around the globe that you mentioned when you presented me. Mm -hmm. So I'm currently uh, delving into that story of how California traveled around the world with oranges, you know, uh, not just for oranges for consumption, but how you produce those oranges. And so, and then you have people producing cal uh, oranges the Californian way in many different geographies, in the, uh, uh, namely South, South Africa, uh, Northern Africa, so the Mediterranean, uh, but also South America, namely in Brazil. And the, the, it's in the Brazilian story where I found out the most amazing virus, you know, which is which local scientists identified as affecting uh, uh, Brazilian orange orchards in the 1920s and 30s, and they called it the sadness virus. So mm -hmm. the sadness virus. And this sadness virus, it shows up through those global connections of the food production system. So it's through trees that arrive from South Africa in Brazil that the virus is, arrives in South America and then it will eventually arrive also in the United States, in mm -hmm. Florida and in California. But the, so the, this thing about the sadness virus, I was like, really, I thought that this deserves deeper exploration. Why these people call this the sadness virus? And, and then how, uh, what, again, what is the role of expertise and of scientists? You know, and the, the thing is always in all these science. So I found out all these scientists and the huge body of experts working around oranges and all of them, most of them, they are not interested in developing new kinds of oranges or in innovation in oranges. No, that's not what they are doing. What all they are always doing, what they are always obsessed is with the fragility of the orchards of the season, it's with the fragility of the food system, it's the fragility of global capitalism. And uh, the virus is about that. You know, the story of the virus that attacks, this virus attacks the, the, the orchards in Sao Paulo area, which in, eventually during the 20th century, Sao Paulo will become the first world producer of oranges in the world. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, um, the, it, it destroys, so this virus that arrived from trees from South Africa destroys most of the orchard, most of Brazilian orchards. And what scientists try to do is how to cope, how to live with this. It's not like destroy, they find out very early on that it will be impossible to destroy the virus. Uh, and, to, and they just have to learn how to live with the 
sense. So that's how they, they and that they describe science as this kind of practice of learning how to cope with a gen general sadness, with, gen with a constant disaster around you. And that the role of scientists is to perform something that will you know, give you some kind of solace, that will produce the, eventually the conditions to be able to live in a world of sadness, which in this case, it's a sadness virus that attacks the, And so they develop tolerant, they are able to develop tolerant rootstocks, orange rootstocks that are able to live with that viruses, not eliminating the viruses, but living with it. Are the, you're going to have to forgive my complete ignorance in this topic. So this is a naive question, but is botanical, is the botanical knowledge of viruses and the, and the, and the knowledge of, of virology in humans, are they advancing in a similar plane? No, are they advancing no, no, in the no, same no. universities or in the same laboratories? I mean, Not in the same laboratories. So, and so there is also, there is, and so the traditional, so there is a huge literature, of course, on the, on human viruses, which is not exactly the same of agriculture, the agricultural role, but of course, in the story of viruses and of identifying viruses, you know, in order to make, think of viruses that it's not visible. So that was what characterized the virus, was not visible. And you were using, uh, so there is this, a great book by Angel Krieger on the on the tobacco mosaic virus, which is the how you actually indicate, you know, how you indicate, how you show that the virus is present, you know, and so plants play a huge role from the beginning, mm -hmm. uh, and um, the but normally people use this and they the plant story and they abandon the plant story. My kind of research, I always stick with my plants or I stick with my animals. I stick how people cultivate stuff and, uh, and how people produce their food. And so that's why I, I actually agree with you, with your mentioning of uh, the, the, what is the, so the importance of uh, that early story here that we have now in connection to coronavirus, that it's, it's uh, directly connected to how we produce food and to the expansion, to the expansion of, uh, of a frontier you know, to a frontier story where you are destroying some kinds of, of uh, uh, habitats and replacing them in other ones, something we saw in the influenza epidemics here in the United States in 1918 in Kansas and producing production of hogs, exactly that kind of how you produce food and how you consume yeah. it. It's actually, and it's actually a fundamental one for, our, for these uh, uh, global stories of, uh, of viruses. I, you know, it's, it's, this is an obvious statement, but maybe it bears repeating is, is historiographically, when we've tried to make these moves to distance um, humanity from uh, agriculture, from animals, from uh, so-called natural actions like you know, waves and storms and those things, um, of course, that, you know, that, that, in, that allows a certain kind of specificity around storytelling. But, you know, the listening to both of you talk, I'm starting to realize yet again that it's the weaving back together of those stories that gives us a much more useful, um, if you will, kind of ground upon which to apply history. And so, you know, in each of these stories, we find uh, water, you know, standing water, not flowing water, too much flowing water, mosquitoes, heat. Um, viruses in animals, viruses in plants, viruses in human. We have to have a handle on, on the interconnections of these very many different things within political structures, not separate from political structures, but that they themselves form the ground upon which political structures are 
are made nowhere, perhaps more, more importantly than Caroline in your story, when talking about you know the, the grounds upon which a, a plantation agriculture can exist and then cease to exist. Um, I want to get. I want to bring the last question um, to you, Caroline, because it's kind of where you started us today, and Tiago brought us, I think, very useful uh, right up to the present. Um, with you know, in Wuhan, and still chasing, I guess, our connections between humans and bats, and that's going to be part of this story as we go. But you know, Caroline, you started us talking um, uh, about the troubling statistics of overrepresentation of African Americans in the case rates of COVID-19. Can you, this is a hard question, but I'll put it to you anyway. How can you draw, how can you draw out that historical linkage? You use the term slow disaster. Mm-hmm. And, and, it, and I wonder how to, can we bring COVID-19 back to that 1893 hurricane in some, in some way? I'm going to try. <laughs> Um, so, I mean, of course, one of the most important parts of this is that, you know, folded into the story of this hurricane um, is that it isn't just about the hurricane itself, right? Yes, this is, you know, a, a powerful and large storm as far as those sorts of metrics go. Yes, of course, storm surge is extraordinary. Um, but it, what makes it so significant is how it ends up sort of coalescing you know, in ways that can sort of sharpen and fade over the course of many decades. There are moments where the hurricane becomes important again and moments where sometimes it sort of fades into the background a little bit, but it ends up sort of interacting with these other currents of, you know, political change with the rise of Jim Crow, economic change with, of course, you know, the 1893 depression, which, you know, led to a decrease in charitable contributions to this effort, right? As well as, you know, the economic changes in the South regionally too. you know, it ends up becoming a part um, of these other histories of, of change. Um, you know, some of these changes are, of course, extraordinarily tragic as, as African-Americans have these, um, you know, has, have this autonomy and self-sufficiency sort of stripped from them as Jim Crow really starts to take hold in South Carolina. And as many of them feel that one of their only options would be to sort of move north away from this environment, these communities that they've known. Um, And in that, you know, in this sort of rise of Jim Crow, there are, you know, these obvious connections between that and and the present um, in which, you know, these systems that create an equitable, you know, distribution of resources, distribution and access to resources um, that, you know, force these difficult political situations um, in which, you know, racism um, ends up uh, putting pressure and, you know, tragedy upon African-American communities, you know, in the rural South as, as well as elsewhere in the country, um, obviously, you know, cannot be ignored if we try to understand um, why African-Americans are, are falling sick and dying at higher numbers. They aren't just falling sick and dying from coronavirus, right? They're, they're falling sick and dying because of these legacies and histories of slavery and racism um, in the United States that, you know, show up time and time again. You know, I'm not saying anything new here by any means. You know, this is sort of a repeated um, call that historians and activists and uh, journalists have been making for, for decades at this point, right? Um, so in that, I think, is where I, I do see these connections, um, where you have to look to the history of racial oppression um, in the United States and how those patterns have played out, where they come from, um, and then how they end up 
um, you know, being reified again and again, um, as we're seeing today. So, yeah. Scott, can I, can I react to this just briefly? Of course. <laughs> Well, I think this is really a crucial point, you know, and I think, uh, uh, thanks Caroline for, for bringing that. And uh, so when I, this really speaks for me, uh, to me for the, the question of uses of history. You know? So we've been asked once and again, you know, what is, what can history teach us and what can, so did this work in history? Didn't that work in history? And then we have things like, oh, in Philadelphia, we didn't answer well to the, to the, to the influenza pandemic while in St. Louis in 1918, they really did well. And then, you know, and then you ask, you start really like when you're listening to someone like Caroline uh, uh, speaking these stories, well, 1918 St. Louis, but wasn't there like a major massacre in 1917 of African-Americans in East St. Louis that actually depopulated much of that area? How can we, how can we tell the history of how the city answered? you know, the you know, influenza uh, pan uh, pandemic of 1918 without telling the history of the massacres in St. Louis in 1917, you know, things like this. And that we actually, there is no good history of connecting both, I think. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, and so it's, it really challenges historians, you know, what kinds of, it's uh, in when we are asked on what, what can we provide, what kind of mm -hmm. historical uh, expertise, uh, it really challenges us what kind of stories we're, we're telling. Yeah, they emerge from particular political structures that, you know, have histories of their own, um, you know, and I think that, yeah, absolutely, that's what we have to think about. We often get faulted because um, we don't usually have clear lessons learned that we can spell out. Um, it's a challenge, right? I mean, I think because to draw those connections out, in some ways implies that that past is over. Mm -hmm. You know, just as you said, Tiago, that, uh, you know, various junctures, to say that a, that a plague is over, or to say that a race riot is over, or to say that a hurricane is over, who says? Who says so? Mm -hmm. You say so because either you forgot or because it suited certain political interests to end that disaster in that moment. I think our job in many ways, and that's why I've enjoyed this discussion so much, is to see that continuity across time. Um, and I'm glad people are asking these questions. I love it when they ask. They often get a much longer answer than they were expecting, <laughs> but that's okay. Uh, and that's part of what we're, what we're doing here. Caroline Grigo, and Tiago Sariva, thank you so much for this great conversation on COVID calls. And I want to remind everybody that COVID calls is on every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time. You can catch it on YouTube live or you can catch it later on the COVID calls podcast on SoundCloud, soundcloud.com. And tomorrow at five o'clock, I have from WHYY, Mike and Scott. Caroline and Tiago, thank you again. Thank you, Scott. Stay healthy, everyone. See you tomorrow. Bye. -bye.